Hello everyone, welcome to Life of Brian, dot dot dot, Manics, that is the podcast, proudly brought to you by our very good friends at Murcott's Driving Excellence, and of course, as usual, I'm here, Kevin Hillier, and Brian Mannix from the Live in the Dreams apartment block on the Gold Coast. Oh, thank you, Kevin. Great to be here today. Great to be anywhere at my age. <laughs> um, had an interesting day yesterday. What did you do? Well, I came back from Melbourne and as it turns out, it was lucky that it was so – because it was freezing in Melbourne on oh. Saturday. I couldn't believe how cold it was. <laughs> so naturally I had, you know, all my Melbourne clothes on when I came to Queensland. And I had my big jacket on and all that stuff, you know. It was a bit hot once I got here. Anyway, I got off the plane and somebody had given me a little Marlboro green and it was green on the inside, unbeknown to me. and. I smoked this cigarette and I got so vague oh, that I just I just forgot to bring my handbag with me and it was like, oh, God, I've lost my bag. But fortunately, because it was so cold in Melbourne, and this very rarely happens, I had my phone and my wallet in my pocket of my jacket. So... I, I lost the keys to my house. I lost my stubby holder and my earphones and stuff. But I didn't lose my phone and my wallet, which is that is your life. So, so Melbourne's cold weather saved me a phone and um, and uh, my wallet. So well, thank you, cold weather in Melbourne. What's the count on the brain cells, though, that you lost? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're still counting on that. I'm not quite Joe Biden, but I'm not far off. Um, <laughs> you didn't fall face you didn't fall face down in the uh, in the tarmac or anything. No, 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 good. no. We were okay. good. To go. Good. But I'll tell you another thing happened yesterday was um, uh, it was my friend Phil's girlfriend, his wife's uh, birthday, so they went to a winery, right? And this bus full of girls, and there's a stripper pole in the bus, and they're dancing around and. And they all got blind. And what I thought was just amazing, and Phil had to put up with it all day, I was travelling, but these girls, they're, they're drunk out of their mind and they all talk at the same time. Nobody listens to each other, but somehow they make it work. Incredible. And and that is different from what blokes do in what way? Well, <laughs> we say, we listen and say, no, you're a dickhead. Or, or the alternative is, oh, mate, oh, I love you. Oh, I, lo- oh, well, oh, I love you, mate. Oh, I love you, mate. <laughs> oh, God, I hate that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. They just don't seem to listen, but they seem to know what each other's saying. It doesn't make any sense. But um, God bless them. They had a great time and um, <laughs> there you go. Uh, now, uh, with thanks to our good friends at Murcott's Driving Excellence, today's show is a beauty, a rock icon from the Australian music industry, Mike Rudd. As that's a good way to pronounce it because it could sound like Mike Crud. No, Mike Rudd. Um, Michael Rudd. Yes, no, one relation, a, no, no relation to Kevin. Uh, and uh, and uh, what a good bloke for a start, and uh, and what a Not talented fun. musician over many many years. Yes, he's an Australian icon, no doubt about that, Kev, no doubt. We'll talk about I'll Be Gone, we'll talk about Ariel, we'll talk about uh, all sorts of things. Uh, a, a lovely moment uh, that uh, that you shared with him about a track on one of the Indelible Merceps albums. 
Oh, that's a beauty. Yes, and we'll play a little bit of that uh, in in the show as well. And then uh, I caught up with Lloyd Cole. Now, Lloyd Cole's been around for a, a lot of years now, Lost Weekend and Perfect Skin are the two big songs that he had. But he's got a new album out called On Pain. It's very good, and uh, I have a little chat with him about that and about uh, how he's going these days. Well, fantastic. Is there any phone numbers we need to be giving out, Kev? Uh, Lloyd Cole's phone number, if you want. No, not Lloyd's. Uh, <laughs> what about what about uh, the fabulous team at Murcott's Driving Excellence? Well, if you're going to drive, you may as well drive excellently, and there's only one way to do that, by going to Murcott's and picking up the phone, buying a gift certificate for someone who you know that's not a very good driver or you think needs a bit of help, and dialing this wonderful number, one three hundred triple five five seven six. That number once more, Kev. Yep. One three hundred triple five five seven six. I spent some time on the road this weekend because I went up to our place up in Inverloch and back again uh, over the weekend, uh, and uh, drove to Geelong and back uh, to do the radio stuff. I spent a fair bit of time. I'm getting that telephone number put on a big sign, and whenever instead of going, you dickhead. When someone cuts me off or doesn't use a blinker or changes lanes, you know, too close to you and or sits up your ass like they do, instead of doing that, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get the little sign with the Mercot's number and put it out the window. Well. And go, actually, here you go, call this. Well, my son, when he got his first car, oh. one of the first things he did to it was he stuck a speaker in the in the end somewhere, and so that, you know, he could actually, you know, if someone was at the thing, he could go, get out of the way, you dickhead, and it would come out to the speaker out the front. And I thought, well, you know, most people get a set of mag wheels or something like that, but not my son. He wanted a, a bullhorn that hooked up to his car so he could abuse other drivers. That's a great idea. I might get one of them. I might get, I might get the sign and get a bullhorn so I can go, hey, dickhead. Uh, those blinkers aren't an optional extra, you know. You're supposed to use them. Um, get to Murcott's. Yes. Stop blurting <laughs> the road rule. I'll, I'll, what I'll do is I'll record I'll, I'll get that little bit where you say the phone number and I'll get that on the ball and just play that. one 555 Let's get to something not so, uh, <laughs> not so angst-ridden. Let's get to a, a, very, a very nice man in the, in the music industry and a very talented one too. Let's talk to Mike Rudd. Let's. Mr. Rudd. That must be Kevin Hillier. Speaking, and uh, the Mr. <laughs> the lovely Brian Mannix. Hey, Mike, oh, how are you? There he is. How are you, Brian? Good, mate. How's yourself? Oh, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> That's good. You're looking good. <laughs> just just being here is good. Bloody yes. Oath. No matter what I look like. <laughs> yeah. Bloody Fair enough. You're obviously busy uh, with gigs and stuff. Uh, well, busy's uh, a very... <laughs> Loose interpretation. Well, you're as busy as you want to be, I'm assuming. No, it works both ways because I like being in the in my little studio here and whenever I have a gig, that kind of interrupts the flow. So the recording thing and being in your little studio, that's what gives you joy? Well, yes, uh, it, joy and frustration because I seem to have made a the business of uh, not finishing anything. So I've got heaps of things started but nothing's ever finished. <laughs> Brian knows what. Yeah, I know. I've got, I've got voice memos. I've got about a hundred ideas for songs. Yeah, and yes. and if I go into the studio, I go, what am I going to record? And I'll just yes. dial through and I'll listen to a bit and go, okay, I'll finish that in the studio. Yeah, I know what you mean about having 
hundreds of nearly finished or this is good but the chorus like need a better chorus or that sort of stuff yes. but, um, yeah. uh, where i at that stage it would be even better but it's it's the voice memo stage where it's mostly at so how do you write mike what's your what's your process for writing and completing a song uh well, uh, I don't have much experience of completing a song. <laughs> but, um, look, it's usually a random idea or mistake. Mistakes generate the most interesting ideas, and if you manage to have the phone handy, uh, then to memo that and stick it down in the vast list of unchecked memos uh, and then come back to it. And what you find usually is that you write something that's in a series of things. So you get a series of a similar idea worked on, which you don't even realise they're similar until you actually review them, and then you find the best of those, and then that's where you start. Um, and that's what it usually starts. If I can come up with a, a lyric idea or a theme that somebody suggested, that's fantastic because I find the lyrics are usually the last thing that happens and that's where you start losing interest <laughs> when you you really have to work at lyrics i find you can come up with maybe a chorus and then yeah it's too hard and uh, <laughs> and you have to leave it for another time since you're talking about recording so you're recording you know in your own home studio now yes. and you know and technology is so good that you can yes. but but you recorded an album at abbey road the rock and roll scars album yes how was abbey road to work in um, it's slightly different from the Australian experience um, in that it's extremely hierarchical. Like you have an engineer and then you have a tape op. Now, the tape op is a tape operator and that's all he does. Well, in those days it was a tape um, and he rolled the tape backwards or forwards and whatever. And that's all he did for that stage of his career, then he moved up the line and became maybe an assistant engineer and then maybe an engineer and then maybe a producer. But the way it happens here, of course, is that um, if you can get to the stage where you understand anything, you can become automatically become an engineer and probably a producer in the same week. You know? <laughs> so um, the, the guys that, that became engineers are, were really good and they it, they made everything sound like you're at Abbey Road, so fantastic. Was it Richard the- Lush? Richard Lush, who did uh, a lot of Sherbet stuff, he was a tape yes. operator at Abbey Road, and then came out here, and uh, you know, all of a sudden, next minute, he's the the biggest thing in the in the seventies in Australia. Yes, yes, uh, and, and Richard was fantastic. Um, had had a great year. I guess that's uh, that's the the starting point. Uh, is if you have a great a, a great year. But you also had on that record um, Jeff Emmerich engineered it. Yes, yes, yes. And Jeff Emmerich, I think he started out as a tape operator for the Beatles. He's got a really good book about, you know, what the production of every Beatles song. But um, when I read that you worked with Jeff Emmerich, I went, oh, I was really jealous. Because just to play it and record it Abbey Road and then have the Beatles engineer work with you. Wow, how cool is that? It was really great, and but actually it was going through the motions as far as EMI were concerned because they didn't really want us to have it to be in the studio at all. We were just an encumbrance because the band they were interested in was the previous version of Ariel. Yeah, and they they they'd been kind of muscled into accepting the deal that they'd made with the other band, so we got a week 
um, of actually putting down the tracks and a week of mixing them. So that it wasn't a very long. At the same time, by contrast, Masters and Apprentices were uh, doing an album and they were luxuriating in a year at Abbey Road. You know, just oh, we'll put. Wow. It. So so we, we were really under the hammer, and not only that, the concept that I had to go into the studio with was like a rock opera, and Em, I said, no, you're not doing that. So well, what are we going to do now? I'd only written about three tunes subsequent to um, the band folding in the first place. So it was those three tunes plus revised versions of um, songs that we'd done with keyboards. So it was kind of interesting from the perspective that it was a guitar, bass, drums version, but it was just rehashing stuff we'd done before, which we were kind of disappointed with. Which version of Aerial was that? Was that the Harvey James version or, or? Yes, the Harvey James version and John Lee on drums. Uh, so it, it was a very interesting band <laughs> dynamically to be involved with because there was Bill and I, the old fogies, and then, then the young guys. So yeah, we, we kind of got used to that as, as Aerial proceeded because everybody was younger than we were by a, a margin, a considerable margin, and we had to deal with the kind of politics of youth whilst whilst being the old fogies, you know, the conspiracy of old fogies. I've got to ask you about a song. Now, I don't think Kev's heard this, but um, I'm talking about uh, the What's Up Your Nose album. Yes, yes. And excuse me just one moment. Yes, yes. What a great song that is. That's just See, hilarious. That's, that's really interesting because my partner doesn't want me to ever play that in public again. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the song is, well, it's about this girl who's about to throw up or somebody's about to throw up. Yes. And, and perhaps you could explain, tell Kev what you did at the end of the song. Yes. Well, we've actually got an MP3 of that, which we play, when we play it live, we put on the MP3 at the end of the song. And, um, yes, it, it's it's a simulated um, version of somebody throwing up. Look, if you've ever been on a, on a plane where they have um, uh, a sick bag, oh. it's kind of like that. But all we did was uh, we got a can of peaches and poured it into a, to get the sound of the actual vomit. And then uh, Lee Lee Neal, the keyboard player, did an elongated burp, which was made even more elongated because we timed it down a bit. So it was a, a lower pitch. It was a disgusting sound, make anybody feel like throwing up immediately. I heard it the first time I heard it and I went, wow, and I had to play it to all of my mates. Like that song got thrashed at my joint. Um, my brother told me that um, that you did it was the can of peaches and that, yeah, but I just think it's such a great story. Yeah, it was a great album too. The whole album was great. But uh, it's, a, it's a it's a funny a funny old album. 
and a real contrast. Of course, the indelible mercepts were meant to be, and they turned out to be a total contrast to Spectrum, who were kind of uh, morbidly serious and played songs half an hour long and stuff like that. So um, there is one long track on on the album. That's when we ran out of songs. But even that's got an interesting uh, talking of tape ops because, of course, we were recording to two-inch tape and we were playing this particular, uh, some good advice it was, which is a bit of a druggy song. Um, we were playing the song uh, because they, the um, producer, Howard Gable and and the engineer had not heard it, and it went on for about 10 minutes. Uh, so they decided to record it as we were playing it. So there we were playing it. And then I noticed in the in the actual control room there was a bit of consternation, and um, and we, we finished up the song, and then the tape ran off the end of the spore. When we walked back into the control room, it was still spinning around. And actually, if you listen to the track, it, it starts to speed up a little bit towards the end and actually raise in pitch because the the tape gets so heavy that it slows down the tape spool. So yeah, yeah, very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> did uh, how did how did the indelible Merceps thing start? Who started that? Uh, look, it started uh, a bit of band in, envy because we used to do a few gigs with Daddy Cool. We did a tour with Daddy Cool, and you know the contrast between the two bands was. You, you couldn't get two bands that were any more different. And on this particular night, we were playing at the Melbourne Uni um, at, in the uh, Buffeteria, and uh, Daddy Cool were playing, and everybody was up dancing. And I was looking at that going, these guys, they get everybody up dancing straight away, and we can't – everybody sits down when we start playing. So – and as well as that, of course, the, the, the pub – scene had opened courtesy of of Billy Thorpe. He'd, he'd managed to engineer things so that you could get a decent fee for playing at playing at pubs and and the and the, the hours had changed where you could play. So it was a feasible sort of thing to do. And Spectrum weren't going to work at the pubs. So I had to I had to think fast about getting another entity that could play, you know, quick up vibe songs uh, that would work in a pub. And that night I came up with the name of the indelible Mertzeps by just reversing spectrum, of course, and uh, and 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 suggesting that we couldn't be rubbed out that easily, indelible, and and that's where it started. Um, we we had uh, I wrote a, a bunch of songs, sort of short and sharp songs, and we actually when we went out onto the road, we we most often played with spectrum, but but every now and again when we were on our own. We had half the amount of gear, you know, small kit of drums, just the piano, no organ. So it was it was a different kind of deal altogether. We thought, but to the average listener, they go, "Well, I can't tell the difference, mate. What's going on?" <laughs> <laughs> did it did it allow you to be, you know, the naughty boy, Mike <coughs> Rudd version, to, to do stuff that you wouldn't that, that Spectrum wouldn't do? Doing short, sharp songs was that, but but as as Brian says, that uh, that particular song is is uh, uh, pretty uh, naughty, uh, taking a perspective that w- you wouldn't normally take. And I was kind of being naughty in those days when you could be. Uh, you just can't do it these days, really, unless you're you know doing some other form of non-music where people accept you know 
dangerous kind of stuff, which is kind of normal, but you're narrowing yourself down into a genre. And in those days, you had to kind of please everybody. So what I would do is write risque lyrics with innocent sounding songs. So, look, later in, in Ariel, I did a, um, wrote a song called Confessions of a Psychopathic Cowpoke. Yep. And, uh, and that was uh, very naughty to the point where now I listen to it going, what the hell was I thinking? But <laughs> It was um, banned, wasn't it? Didn't, it? didn't the... Oh, yeah, it was, yeah. It was amongst five tracks that were, were banned off that album, yes. Very pleased with that. We, we, <laughs> yeah, I think I think we, Skyhooks only had four, didn't they? You had five. <laughs> we did, and and uh, and there was a moment there where um, Stan Rofe and uh, was uh, we were going to do a gig on air with uh, Daddy Cool, um, and it was going to be a live broadcast Australasia. So we had New Zealand listening as well, and so um, Stan, thinking that we were a dangerous bunch of guys, said. We want a list of the songs you're playing and those songs are not going to be on it. I gave them the list, but nobody actually read it. Uh, they just sort of assumed that I was going to be a, a good boy. So we started playing and we started playing Chicken Shit, which was our, our first <laughs> song. We got we got four bars into it and were taken off air and that was the end of our part of the show. And Stan Rove never spoke to us again. So that was a good result. <laughs> Ah, beautiful. How did you, what what got you, you came over with a band was called The Chance when you originally yes, came over yeah. from New Zealand. So what, what was that in search of the, the greater kind of uh, commercial success? Is that why you came over? We'd been very fortunate in Christchurch um, that there hadn't been an earthquake at that stage, but we were playing a gig at a place called Stage Door. The Stage Door was called uh, the King Bee before that, but we were basically stuck there for two years playing every weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and we built up a really terrific following. And the guitarist was a, an Australian guy, and unbeknownst to us, uh, he was actually working uh, with as a, an apprentice with the RAAF, and um, his mother had had twigged onto the fact that he hadn't come back. And uh, and so they uh, they called the police and, and he was arrested and, and taken back to Australia. So that was a very good reason for me to think, well, maybe we should go after Australia because there's not much we can do better here than, than this gig. So we uh, a few months later we popped on the plane and landed in Melbourne full of hope. And how how did how did it go the 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 chart because you finished up playing with Ross the two Rosses didn't you? Indeed, yeah. So uh, the band uh, that I brought over actually lasted about six months and then uh, succumbed to the usual musical differences and all that kind of stuff. So which hadn't worried us prior to that because everybody accepted that we did a mishmash of stuff uh, in our one gig. So uh, yeah, it broke up. Uh, I got married and then was going, what am I going to do now? And joined the party machine on bass, which I'd never played before, but that was no problem. It was good fun. Were you the bass uh, player in the party machine? I was indeed, yes. And and the, the band lasted for a, a couple of years before Ross got a better offer to go over to the UK and join up with, with uh, Procession, who were one of the first super groups 
who had decided that they should uh, start writing material of their own and, and, and that caused a bit of stress because they hadn't been doing that up until then. They were um, just a flash covers band, really good players in the band, you know, Mick Rogers, for instance. But they didn't really have a writer. I think Brian Peacock was a bit of a writer. Yeah, he was. Yeah. But anyway, Ross went across there and joined them and, and and the party machine broke up and so there I was going, what are we going to do now? And um, and started putting a band together, which ultimately became Spectrum. Right. Better ask you about the big one, I'll Be Gone. Um, yes. How did, how did that come about? What was the inspiration or was it, you know, just something that evolved or had a cab about? Uh, well, money was always a, a primary concern. You, you know how it is, Brian, because yep. you, you, um, when you're playing to live, um, it, it, things do get a bit tense on occasions. And then, and then you see, you, you start playing with, for want of a better word, amateur bands, and they're looking perfectly happy because they've got other sources of income. So, as I say, that the money thing was always a, a big issue. So, writing a song about not having money was a was a natural, and that was yeah. the first song I wrote, I wrote on my own, basically. Ross and Ross were writing all the songs for the Party Machine. I wrote a couple of little ideas, but basically, "I'll Be Gone" was the first song that I wrote on my own. And it's it's all about money and not having it. That's probably why people relate to the song so much. Because I think so. Yeah. And, yeah. And it, 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 most rock and roll songs about money are sort of pretty heavy and and cynical, but this is whimsical rather than that. So I think it kind of finds an audience by being whimsical. Did you yeah. ever yeah. consider calling it "Someday I'll Have Money"? Yeah, but very uh, in the latter days. Um, I call it that now because that's the way most people identify it. If you say, oh, I'll be gone, they go, what? Um, but if you say, someday I'll have money, they go, yeah. If you play the harmonica riff, they go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's an instantly recognisable series of words, instantly recognisable uh, melody. Are you yes. surprised that, I mean, even now, and I played it when I spoke to you the other week, I played it on the radio that day, and it still yes. sounds bloody like it was made yesterday, not in 1969. And and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. It doesn't immediately identify an era. It's it's different whatever era you put it in. And the other thing is that we had uh, Mark Kennedy on drums and he only lasted, he didn't even last till the release of the song, unfortunately. He joined uh, Doug Parkinson in Focus. He gave it a, a kind of very interesting shuffle that takes it out of just being, I don't know, what would you call it? Um, anyway, it just being what it is into something that's a little bit musical as well, a little, a, a little, a little bit exciting as well, So, uh, and musically speaking. So I think those two things combine. Do you consider it the best thing you've ever written? It's <laughs> no. I think it's the most successful thing I've ever written. Yeah. And... I never tried to duplicate that, but I've written other silly songs as well and they haven't done, they've done okay, but they haven't done as well and nothing I've done has done as well as that song, so I'm very grateful to it. Yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, oh, a terrific song. Jamaican Farewell, where did that come from? While we're talking about songs you've written that yes, still around and still being played? Yeah, look, 
That was the first uh, single for Ariel, and Tim Gaze and Nigel McCara had arrived as an item uh, from Sydney. Tim had that uh, that riff, da 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 and, and I heard him playing it. Well, wow, that's that's really good. That's really catchy. Saves me writing a commercial song. And and I wrote the, the verses that uh, I kind of stuck in in between that happy riff. Again, they they kind of a, a bit of a morbid thing because it's, it's about a suicide. But um, you would never know that. It it's still sounds quite happy. You, you don't want to, you don't tend to analyse what's happening lyrically. So I was able to get away with that. It's as close to being the two of us working together as, as I usually get. I mean, I, I just tend to write by myself. If somebody comes up with an idea, then I'll stick my ideas in there and make it work somehow. What was the what was the um, the idea of Ariel? Because it was an interesting mix of you know you and Bill from Spectrum and, yeah. and the other two guys were for Tum and Shuds, which was a band yes. that was like a I guess a, a a surfy hippie progressive rock band. Yes, all of those. And I'd I'd seen I'd seen them playing at Sebastian's and and Tim couldn't have been much more than seventeen or eighteen at the time, and he was he just stood out as being an incredibly inventive and just a wonderful guitarist. Still reckon he's one of the best in, in the country. So when when Spectrum uh, demised and he was available, it was natural to get together and, uh, and, and try and do something. But then we were trying to take advantage of the, of the, the demise of Spectrum because we'd brought out um, a, a huge audience for comparatively huge for us at the Dallas Brooks Hall and we'd done a couple of shows there to finish off as well as interstate. So there was a bit of momentum going. So it was it would have been good for us to come up with something new pretty quickly. But the idea behind it was to be a total contrast to Spectrum. The only interesting thing you could look at with Spectrum was a light show that played over us. Um, we didn't do anything on stage. We just stood there and played or in and the drummer's place sat there and played. Um, and then with the aerial, we got dressed up. We had a light show. We had bombs exploding. We did the whole works. And I wrote a, um, a whole bunch of songs in really fast time. I think it was in within months we were doing our first show, which was at the Hawthorne Town Hall with Billy Thorpe and... Uh, Ross Wilson's new band, uh, Mighty Rock, uh, Mighty Kong. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So there were there were kind of three bands there, all demoing their wares on the same night. So it was it was really interesting. A lot of a lot of pressure we put ourselves under, and the fact that it was a put together band meant that we barely lasted the year, unfortunately, and uh, and then. In, Imploded, exploded, we ploded everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. It's a really good uh, aerial song that I love called It's Only Love, which I think Glenn Mason oh, yes. sings. Just, yes, a, just a great song and a song that to me sounded like it could have been a you know, West Coast American band could have done that. Yes. I thought that was the best single that we did, but by the time that came around, that was the last thing we did. Yeah. By the time that came around, we'd worn out all those friendships because 
Uh, we tried a whole bunch of things. Nothing had worked. And and even if we'd done something that was um, uh, really fantastic, um, which it was, uh, nobody was going to listen anymore. <laughs> yeah, That's, pity because it's a great song. Yeah, I thought so too. And uh, it, I had nothing to do with it writing-wise. Glenn wrote that. Yep. Uh, I, I produced it, but that was it. Basically. Yeah, no, really, really, as I said, I reckon it could have been, you know, a West Coast American band could have done that and would have been a, a massive hit in America. Is it is it true that you introduced Dragon to Peter Dawkins? Yes, it, it is. I mean, I think that the story's been compacted for, for ease of listening, but basically I saw Dragon playing at, at a uni, a uni gig. Uh, but anyway... And, and they were they were mighty. I, I just thought they were what an incredibly dangerous looking band. Um, and so I, I mentioned them to Peter Peter Dawkins. He says, "Oh yeah, dangerous, eh? That's what we're looking for." Not. <laughs> so um, so I was delegated when we were in Sydney recording. I was delegated to go and meet the band and see what they thought about recording with Peter. And uh, so I had a bit of a chat with the drummer because he looked like the only straight guy in the band. And then a few weeks later, he was dead. Yeah. So, anyway, that that was a kind of I kind of got them into the studio with Pete. I don't think they enjoyed it, but they had a few number ones. So, what can be wrong with that? <laughs> so, you're recording at the moment. You're not finishing anything. Um, That's right. Yeah. Thank you. Will this will this be an album eventually? Uh, look, uh, if I can get one going, then that's uh, that'll be a model for the for an album to follow. Yes, <laughs> yeah, right. and and I've got one at the point now of uh, putting down a, a decent vocal and uh, and and getting things so that I can actually do a mix. And I, I was surprised to read in one of my diaries that I started this in June of last year, and I thought it was like. Months ago, but it's more than months ago. So, yes, I'm hoping to have a, a, a vocal on board shortly. And so, one track could lead to an album. Hooray! Oh, hooray! <laughs> <laughs> so, would it, would you describe it as spectrumish, uh, indelible, merceptish-ish, uh, aerial-ish, Mike Rudd-ish? How, how yeah, would you Mike, describe this? Mike, Mike Ruddish, I think, is is the way. Um, rubbish is so close to close to rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit worried, but um, yes, no, yeah, Mike Ruddish. So we'll have the Mike Ruddish album out at no particular date. No, we'll have a, a Mike Ruddish single out. That's what I'm hoping right. to okay. get myself encouraged with, and then go from there. Uh, well, does the song have a title? Yes. Oh, actually, and it does. Like, it does have a title. What's it called? Thump and Tum. Thump and Tum? Yes. That's the name of an old uh, go-go joint, isn't it? It's, it's a venue, a venue, my man. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. The Thump yeah. and Tum, yes. Yeah. Do you um, play all the instruments when you record at home? you um, playing everything or do you yeah, get people I to come play, in and help? I can play everything, I put it in, and then if I'm not happy with it, I'll get somebody in, you know, a member of the band in to come and fill in the bits and make it sound real, you know. Yeah. Hey, lovely to catch up with you, Mr. Rudd. Yeah, you too, be good. Yeah, man. You too, Brian. Good on you, Mike. Keep no on, keep on keeping on, and uh, if you've ever finished that single, 
alert the media, as in us, and we'll uh, yes. we'll have a chat and we'll uh, we'll we'll play it. You're the yeah. first person I've mentioned it to, and I'm very grateful for your uh, wonderful reception. Well, we're waiting with bated breath. Yes, <laughs> just, to, just to see if you can finish it. Yeah, well, yeah. Keep breathing. Keep breathing. Uh, good on you, Mike. Thanks for your time, mate. Really appreciate it. Uh, no worries. I really appreciate it too. Thank you. Health and happiness, Thanks, Mike. mate. You too. Cheers. So we released as a single. We so liked it, but it's only love.
There is uh, Mike Rudd in all his glory with uh, Ariel back in the day and uh, also with uh, with that, that fabulous, iconic song. That is just such a great song, I'll Be Gone. One of, and, the, one of the best. And you're right, Kev, and right now we've come to the part of the show which we call the middle bit. <laughs> Intermission. <laughs> people, people really like the middle bit. I've had a lot of people who have said, look, I like the show, I like the interviews. But I really love the middle bit, right? The bit between the two uh, interviews. So we go. Yeah. From, we're transitioning from Mike Rudd, and we're about to move into the Lloyd Cole suite. So that's that's where we're transitioning now. Um, so this is that that little transition now. I don't quite know how that would work, but. Uh, I'm sure they'd get on these two, actually. He's a really nice fellow, Lloyd Cole, uh, and I got a chance to have a talk to him. So a new album coming out on the 23rd of June called On Pain, which he recorded in his attic, so we'll talk to him about that, uh, and also about uh, the fact he might be coming to Australia very, very soon. So mm. let's get to that now. Here is... Uh, is well, hang on a second, Kevin. What? what? Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's episode <laughs> and part of The Middle Bit. <laughs> Stay tuned for next week. The middle bit's going to be even better. (laughs) Bumper version of the middle bit next week, I promise you that. Here's Lloyd Cole. Hello. Hey, Lloyd, how you doing? I'm all right. Well, congrats on the album. I've been listening to it. I really like it. Well, either there's a conspiracy around the world or people do seem to really like my record. (laughs) Is uh, So when when were the songs conceived? Oh, boy. Um... Well, I was on tour, the tour for the album before, the Guesswork tour, which did get through Australia and New Zealand. And we were on the second leg of the European part of the tour when we played Hamburg, drove to Gothenburg, and then we were shut down. That was March of 2020. So I got home later that month and I started work on it right away. Um, I already had some notes uh, some ideas for songs that I hadn't been able to finish for the previous record. And Blair had delivered some song ideas that I was excited by. And so I, I got working. I, I got working up to the point where I thought, okay, this will be a record. And then I lost impetus because I realised that this album wasn't going to pay for my mortgage payments. Yeah, uh, As you know, the current model we don't really make money from making albums. So I started a thing called a Patreon page and it took all my energy for quite a long time and we got to the point where it was paying our bills and, yeah, we didn't lose the house. Uh, I'm still here in the attic uh, where I recorded the last two records. Uh, But, yeah, it took a bit of a setback and I really couldn't focus on it because I was more focused on keeping a roof over my kids and my wife. Yeah. Uh, so uh, finally, could sort of see the light at the end of the tunnel at the end of 2021, maybe, and the, the the gigs that were postponed were finally rescheduled and looked like they weren't going to be postponed again. And I started working again a little bit. Then I went out and did the 
postponed gigs and got home in I think May of last year and then just worked solidly on it uh, until October when it was finished. Yeah. And the songs are mostly songs from ideas from the last few years. The third song on the record, uh, I Can Hear Everything, was originally an instrumental that Blair wrote in 1983. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, it's got that really interesting electronic kind of vocal effect on the beginning, which is sort of interesting. you got some really interesting sounds and, and that on this on this album. Thank you. Yeah, I, 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 I'm at the point where I'm quite happy to treat the vocal like any other instrument. There's no, there's no attempt to sound naturalistic. It's clearly made in the studio. The only thing that was recorded with a microphone on the sessions is the vocal. There's no, there's no drums that are actually drums. They're all synthesizers or what have you. Um, yeah, it's not, not naturalistic. <laughs> A very, very uh, the the vocal on Wolves. Um, that's a that's a really lovely vocal on that. Thank you, thank you. And that was done. Uh, I think that was one take. That wow. was the first song. That, that was the first song that I started working on. And that's the thing with the technology we have now. If you get the right feeling for a vocal these days, it really doesn't matter if a little bit might be a bit out of tune because you can just fix it. Yep. Yeah. And that's far more important to get the right feeling for a vocal. In fact, that's what Chris, the producer, is telling me. is just like, get it sounding the way you want it, and if I hear anything I don't like, I'll fix it. Yeah. The uh, the mood of the songs, was that was that coloured by, by COVID in any way and by the lockdown and by, by, you know, the fact that you had to sort of all of a sudden go, hang on, I need to pay the bills, I need to do some things. I know, you've, I know you sold some hand, handwritten lyrics. You were doing that as a kind of little side hustle there during, during the pandemic. Yeah, that that and the Patreon page kept us alive. And to be honest, once I started doing that, it's like, what an idiot I am for not having done this before. (laughs) 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 If I'd been doing this for a few years, I might actually have a substantial amount of money in the bank (laughs) and not have to worry about it. Um, You know, it's hard to say if it's coloured. It's it's hard to imagine that it wasn't. Uh, And and yet when when you're in the middle of things... When you're the thing that's doing the creating, it's not so easy to have an overview of yourself because you're there. You can't step back and look at yourself because you, it's, that's impossible. And, and and that was actually, that actually became one of the, I would say, almost recurring themes on the record of propositions which are logically impossible, but we're putting them into action. Mm. And it's a bit like, uh, I feel like some of the scenarios in the songs are, almost like Philip K. Dick type scenarios where you go, well, well, we can make a movie of this, but it couldn't actually ever really happen because it's logically impossible. And they don't have an ending too. There's, there, there's some unanswered questions in the lyric content of, of some of the songs that you've got. I don't like offering answers. Um, I don't mind offering questions, uh, but I certainly don't. I certainly wouldn't like to present myself as somebody who has solutions. I just have comments. And, and that's, that's kind of what being a, a musician and I guess the theme of your work has always sort of been, hasn't it, is, is asking those questions and, and kind of prodding people musically and lyrically. I, I, I think I like to present work which doesn't have any definite n- necessary understanding. If, 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 if one person hears it this way and the other person hears it that way, they're both right. 
Yeah, that was one of the most dis- disappointing things I ever heard Bowie say one time when he was talking about he was oh you pretty things, and he was very disappointed that the I think it was Peter Noon who was doing the cover version of it didn't understand his song and was misunderstanding it. And I thought, boy, it's, Bowie's my hero, but surely he can understand that not everybody should hear the songs the same way. I think Oscar Wilde said that if I only have to read a book once, why would I ever want to read that book? Yeah. And I mean, and you want, uh, because I have, I'm a different person to the person next to me, if I listen to something, it has a different effect on me than it has on them or it should. It necessarily does. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit like when you look, if you're looking at a sculpture, when the sun's in a position, certain position in the sky, and you're standing here and the other guy's standing there, the shadows are different. Yep. And it works like that with, with, with art because, because you interact with art as a, as a consumer, as a listener, as a viewer. You interact with it, and the only thing that you've got to interact with it is yourself, and, you're, and, you're, and you are unique. Yeah. Uh, as a listener too, you invest in it. I mean, and you get drawn back to. So, I mean, I'm sure as you talk about this album to various people that you'll talk to, some will be drawn to On Pain, some will be drawn to Wolves, some will be drawn to The Idiot. Uh, everyone's drawn to a different thing because of different reasons. Different reasons, and and, and growing up uh, at different time periods. I spoke to a guy today who didn't see the uh, the angle from The Idiot that I was seeing at all. Uh, because he's about 10 years younger than me and he wasn't obsessed by Bowie and Iggy in 1976 like I was. <laughs> it's an interesting song, The Idiot. I mean, you've certainly, um, lyrically, you've, you've covered a bit of territory in that. I have, and, and I'm, I'm really happy with it. And at the same time, as I, as I accept that it is a bit corny, because it, but it is, it is a song in which... Well, there's a scenario in which two people who were almost certainly destined to die managed to somehow or other save each other through their friendship and through their work. And it's, it's actually a lovely story and it's a true story. And I've, ju- I've, just, I've just adapted it into a song and, and, and hopefully left enough detail, blurry enough that you don't have to hear it that way if you don't know about that bit of history. Yeah. And it's, again, the unanswered question, how are we still alive? And that's clearly <laughs> what they would have been asking themselves with the life that they were leading at that stage. I, I think so. Yeah. Um, I sent it to Iggy. I haven't heard anything back yet. <laughs> okay. Do you, do you <laughs> fingers, expect to? Fingers, I don't know. I mean, you know, he, he, he works as a DJ for the BBC these days. So my people are in touch with his people. And and, and my actually my PR guy said, you should send this to Iggy and write him a note. I was like, really? He said, yeah. I said, okay. Wow, that'll be interesting. Yeah, could be. He's doing, could is he doing just... Glastonbury? Is that, uh, I've seen that, that he's doing that this year? I, I think he is. And it's, 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 it's amazing how Iggy is all of a sudden huge. I mean, it was 20 years ago, he'd be struggling to get 1,500 people into a, an auditorium. And, and now he's, he's become this, icon that you probably always should have been, to be honest. Yeah, it's interesting. I think some of that is pandemic-driven too. I think so. We, 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 we had a reflective period in there during the pandemic of looking back at things and going, hang on, why, why, why isn't this person more important to us than they are? We could have lost them. I think there was a, a little bit of that going on. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah, maybe so. And, and also Bowie passing. Uh, that was before the pandemic, but it, it brought the focus onto 
some of his work. And, and in my opinion, a lot of Bowie's best work was producing and writing for others. Transformer, the backing vocals and that Ian Ronson do on that are just out of this world. And, uh, all the young dudes he just gave to the band. Uh, and his production work on uh, Lust for Life and The Idiot is, I mean, I prefer those two albums to the albums he made those years. Yeah, okay. It's interesting. I know you're a massive T-Rex fan as a, uh, as a, a music lover too, weren't you? I was. T-Rex were the band that got me into music in the first place. Uh, I think I, I was, it was my 11th birthday in 1972 when I got Electric Warrior, the first album I ever owned. The slider came out shortly after that, yeah. and I was just, yeah, I was I was besotted, and I still am, to be honest. And uh, one of my oldest best friends from college, we we, was, we still text each other about T Rex every now and again. We were talking about tanks recently, the the, the very underrated tanks. We both love it, but it, critics didn't like it. Was that the one that had Twentieth Century Boy on it? Twentieth Century Boy wasn't actually on the album. Remember back in those days when bands didn't actually put all the singles on the albums. Uh, <laughs> but Twentieth Century Boy was from the sessions from that album. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, I can remember when there were albums, Lloyd. For God's sake. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, we still we we still cling to the idea of the album, even even if the playlist has really superseded it. Well, that's what I, you've I done mean, on this I'm, album, isn't it? That's what you've done on this album, record, whatever we finish up calling it. This project, yeah, it's an album. It's absolutely, it's an album, and 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 I don't have any interest in producing something that's not an album right now. Uh, you know, maybe if Dua Lipa calls me up and says, "Shall we do one track together?" I might say, "Sure." <laughs> but, uh, um, oh, you pushover! Uh, yeah, but I am still interested in. I think it's just because that's. That's what I grew up with. You you held an LP in your hand and it was something that meant an awful lot to you. And all I really want to do is create stuff that means an awful lot to other people. Yeah. I actually enjoyed and made sure, uh, made a conscious effort to listen to it the way I would have if it had been an album given to me when I was, you know, 20, 30 years ago, uh, to listen to it track by track rather than listen to it, you know, oh, listen to the wolves now. No, I didn't do that. I actually listened to it from one through and, and didn't take them out of sequence at any time until after I'd actually got a little familiar with the track. So I really enjoyed that. That process was was kind of sort of interesting and, and sort of took me back a fair bit, to be honest. Well, yeah, we, we spent a, a long time trying to figure out the right running order. It's yeah. not, we didn't just throw it together. You know, we finished the mixing and then it took us about a week to finally decide, yeah, this is this is the right way to have it. Uh, I think for a long time I thought Wolves was going to be the first song on the album, not the last. And it, and it could have worked that way. And, you know, the song that we opened the album with is, well, it's not even really a song that the album opens with. It really is. It's, it's a sound uh, that, that becomes a song. What's that I process for you? How does that, how does that work? What does the... Does the, the sound part of it come first and then the lyrics are laid on later or how do you, or, or is every song different? I think every song is a little bit different, but there was there was a lot of stuff going on in the making of this record that was quite a bit different to previous records I've done in, in terms of a lot of it was made very much like the sort of music concrete that people used to make electronic music by cutting up tapes and putting things together uh, and reassembling things that they'd recorded. And 
using the tape machine as a synthesizer or what have you. So, I mean, Wolves, for example, came out of the, the sound that you hear at the beginning of the song is me playing around with the stuff that's behind me here, yeah. this modular synthesizer. I found these two oscillators creating this loop that I liked, and I thought, well, that's beautiful. I have no idea what that is, but I'm going to record it right now to make sure I don't lose it. And then I imported it into my recording system, figured out, oh, actually, I can play D minor and F over this. And then before you know it, I'm starting to sing that melody. But it didn't come from the piano or the guitar. It came from some kind of a soundscape. Wow. Um, and si similarly on a, like Warm by the Fire, I'm playing all those guitar bits, but you're not hearing what I played first time. I played stuff and I thought, well, I like that sound, but that's boring and it's not working. So I just cut it up and put it back together and kept moving it around until it was doing something that I thought sounded more musical. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't standing around experimenting with a guitar in my hand all day. I was sort of sitting around with pieces of audio and moving them back and forth until they made music. So, it was, yeah, and a lot of the album was made that way. Yeah. The lyrics to, um, to Warm by the Fire, a lot of, obviously, there's Los Angeles references in a couple of the songs uh, on the album. Uh, Warm by the Fire, I've, I've already seen some comments that you, you won't say what it's actually about, which is obviously, again... <laughs> What you like to do is is put it into my head and the listener's head rather than this is about this and this is how it starts and this is how it finishes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it's my place to to to, to say and 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 I know it's the, the Los Angeles line in the song was literally just something I threw away when I was trying to figure out the vocal line <laughs> and I just I just sang it to try and get from A to B. Uh, when I when I originally wrote down "Warm by the Fire" in my notebook, it was when I was seeing the the footage of the the uh, the riots in the Paris with the with the high rises burning and what have you. So that was the original kind of impetus for the song, but that's pretty boring. I thought, to be honest, it'll it's not going to keep you for four minutes. And and for me, the song didn't really work until I came up with the idea for verse three, which was actually originally some notes I had for what was going to be a different song. And verse three is the first that kind of questions, is anything actually happening? Or is this just maybe a film script that we're hearing? Or is it maybe a video game that the narrator's playing? Or is it just a song? Which it really is just a song. Yes. <laughs> There's a nice little mind game going on there too, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I have a song called "If I Were a Song," you know, and it and it and it sort of asks that question. It's like, would you would you be moved if I told you that I was just a song? It wasn't something from my life. It wasn't some real love. I'm just a song. Um, we we've become a a, a a world of oversharing everything about everything that we've ever done uh, via social media now. Um, you know, I'm I'm absolutely part of it. You know, it's. Uh, I think with COVID, I think it, it. I think some of the social media stuff did actually help. I joined. A, I joined an online cycling community, and I got friends all around the world who cycle and post their rides, and I post my ride and take photos of my bike in various places. Uh, yeah, it's uh, during COVID. If it wasn't for cycling and being able to golf yeah. and doing these things, both uh, you know, with uh, safe distancing, I don't know. I don't know what I would have done. 
Now, the golf thing goes back to what your parents worked in a golf on a golf course or in a golf shop or something back in the 70s. Is that they, right? They, yeah, they, yeah they, they took a job basically running the clubhouse and the catering. And that's what they did for until I had my job. Then um, they got out of that business. But yeah, so that's why we moved around. That's how we ended up in Glasgow. Because the only way in that job like that to get a wage increase is to go to a wealthier club. Yeah, I do. You know, as you probably know, Melbourne is my favourite city in the world to play golf. <laughs> I'm gonna, and I'm really hoping I'm going to be back again fairly soon. Oh, uh, uh, good. Yeah, no, it's a, there's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful golf courses. Uh, you're obviously a fair golfer. What do you play off these days? Golf has been very cruel to me the last five years. Oh, here we go. (laughs) No, no, honestly, it's been been very cruel to me the last five years. Uh, So I don't even really, I don't think my handicap is is really official right now. It says eight, but I play more like about an 18 right now. Uh, It's really, I'm quite, quite close to, uh, quite close to calling it a day if I can't find something. I never used to understand how some of my friends who've been good golfers get to a point where they, they say they don't want to play anymore, but I'm almost there. Uh, thankfully, I've got a lot of good friends, and I just booked a very, very expensive lesson for for about three weeks' time, and hopefully this teaching professional will be able to give me something to hold on to. But, uh, yeah, it's tough. Who is it, Nick Faldo? Who's 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 teaching you? <laughs> it's not Nick Faldo. It's a, it's a young woman who's... Rated number one teacher on the LPGA tour right now. She happens to be only about an hour away from where I live, and so I'm going to give it a try. But yeah, oh, I'm good. a bit lost. It's, it's, yeah, I'm a bit lost right now. Th- thankfully, my cycling has been improving, generally speaking, and it's quite nice to be part of a cycling club and go for group rides. It's very beautiful. The the, uh, the scenery around here in New England is it's lovely and very nice uh, um, terrain for cycling. Some some nice hills. And some nasty ones. Yeah, is that a, is that a complete turn off from everything that you do? Is that a, is that when you do switch the mind off, you jump on your bike and you go, or is that a place where you go and warm by the fire? Lyrics come into your head. Is how's that process work? When I ride on my own, I do find myself sometimes running song ideas through my head. Uh, when I ride with a group or with friends, no, it's a, I'm not thinking about anything else other than what we're doing. Sometimes we'll chat about this and that, but I, I don't think about my work, which is uh, which is nice. And when I'm golfing, I don't think about my work at all. No. Oh, go well. Golf's very obsessive. It's a very obsessive game to play. It is. I mean, it's a beautiful game, but I, I never realised how cruel it could be until recently. <laughs> uh, I saw a quote where you talked about uh, you know now that you're now that you're old uh, that uh, you've you've got that what have you got to lose attitude? Is that is that how you went into the the making of this this album? Uh, to a certain extent, yeah. But also, the previous album had explored similar sonic territories, and um, and and that felt like a, quite a bold and dangerous move at the time. And and it was lovely that lots of fans publicly embraced it, even though I expected them to go, "Where are the jangly guitars?" The move from guesswork to this album. All I wanted to do, really, all, I just had a very simple plan. I wanted to make the simple stuff simpler, and I wanted to make the complex stuff more complex, and so that there was a wider panorama, I suppose, sonic panorama and musical panorama. And I think I think I succeeded. Yeah, it's a very easy album to listen to. That's nice because I have no interest in making difficult music. Yeah, 
um, a, a very easy album to to digest and, and listen to. And I, I keep I, I must admit I mentioned earlier you get drawn back to us. I I keep getting drawn back to the idiot. Um, is the one I go back to first before I go back to the others. Well, that's that's going to be the single after the album. Oh, okay. I don't think it's called a sing- it's not called a single anymore. It's called a focus track. <laughs> oh, I really? Think it's going to be, oh, it's gonna be the, <laughs> oh. Oh, That's what I heard earlier. Oh, that's what I heard God. earlier today. It's, it's going to be called a well. It's going to be the, the second song we make a video for. So, yeah. Um, yeah. To you and, and I, 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 to you and I, I, that's a single, Lloyd. Let's just stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> One word I've always thought when I've listen to your work and, and, and again, it comes from this. There's an elegance about your work that I really like. That, that's like something that you're word. comfortable I, with? Yeah, I am. I like that word. I, I mean, elegance uh, Elegance for me means finding the right timbres. It means finding the right words. It means not having too many words, not having too few words. Um, yeah, I... I, I I'll, I'll take that. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll grab out your hand. <laughs> you can. I want to ask you one other question. I, I ask a lot of songwriters this one. Forget the money part of it. Just purely and simply, is there a song that you would love to have written? Is there a song that, that means a lot to you that you wish had L. Cole on the, on the songwriting credit? I don't, I don't really think that way. Um, I think... Every now and again, you'll hear maybe a contemporary have a lot of success with a song and, and you'll go, oh, boy, and they deserve that success because that song is amazing. Sure, you know, think about songs like that. Think about a song like Win by David Bowie from Young Americans. It's just an amazing piece of work. Um, Sweet Thing from Diamond Dogs. But I don't really wish I'd written them. I just wish I'd written better stuff myself and I'm hoping I keep trying to write better stuff. Music always meant the world to me and, 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 and different times in my life, different types of music. I think we hold on most dearly to the music from between our teenage years and our mid-twenties years because the, the, there were times when music was just absolutely everything to yeah, us at that time. It's, 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 it's not everything anymore. So an album like Born to Run, when that came out, I mean, I must have just listened to it four times a day for every day of the week for I can't remember how long until I could afford another album. <laughs> uh, now, you know, now I'm excited by something like this this American composer I've just discovered called Callie Malone. And, and I'd have to say that her music, you could probably fairly say, was almost div- completely devoid of melody. Oh. It's, just, it's just sound. But it's very beautiful. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so I think some people call it like drone music. She does concerts where she take, plays uh, she plays church organs and she plays around with the drawbars rather than really changing the melody. She's just changing the timbre of the sound very gradually. And, it, and it's beautiful. Uh, so I'm, I'm in a good place musically because I'm still, I'm still excited by possibilities and excited by new music, even if it's not everything to me anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice place to be in. I haven't been, haven't been sort of. Uh, the music industry hasn't made you bitter and twisted, which it does to so many people. Uh, you know, there was big mistakes made uh, at certain times, but what are you going to do? You know, I'm not a time lord. 
<laughs> yes. Well, listen, congratulations on the album. Thank you so much for spending some time having a chat about it, and I wish you all the best of luck, and hopefully uh, you get to come here again soon and uh, uh, play some music and some golf. Fingers crossed. Uh, we're hoping we're hoping to be in the Hamer Hall in, in sometime in December, but uh, the promoter and my agent are banging it out right now, and hopefully they'll come to an agreement. Beautiful. Good on you, yeah. Luke. Thanks. Cheers, then. Good luck. Cheers. Bye. A bit of Lloyd Cole and uh, the album, uh, as I mentioned, On Pain is available from the 23rd of June, so a week or so away from the release of that. And we're going to play a track off one of the tracks that we talked to, the one that I, I said in the interview that I keep coming back to all the time, the one called The Idiot, which is about Bowie Me? and Iggy. No, <laughs> strangely enough. Bowie and Iggy in, um, in Berlin. Uh, when they made uh, the Idiot album and uh, when they were together and uh, listened to the lyrics and it'll all uh, sort of make sense. It's a really good song, so we're going to finish with that this week. Uh, but our thanks to Mike Rudd for being on the show and to Lloyd Cole. And I'll tell you, Brian, mm-hmm. Wendy Matthews is coming up. She is a lovely girl. Glenn A. Baker's coming up. He's a lovely girl too. <laughs> He'll love that. Oh, doesn't not. doesn't he tell a good story? Goodness he gracious knows me! Everybody, and we can have him on regularly because he's got so much to say. We really scratched the surface. Only scratched the surface with him. And we're not talking just rock star people either. I mean, there's a story that he tells that you'll hear in uh, in coming weeks about Fidel Castro that defies description almost. Yes. How how the hell? <laughs> let me let me just plant the seed. Glenn A. Baker. Fidel Castro 
and the drummer from the police, all yep. together in Cuba. And, of course, Glenn A. Baker nearly gets himself shot. Yeah, in the well, of course, as he probably <laughs> should have. <laughs> Going to catch up with David Sterry from Real Life as well and a uh, man who's been the drummer for the Eagles and, uh, and numerous bands and was part of Joe Walsh's uh, Barnstorm uh, uh, band is Joe Vitale catching up with him as well and a few other little ones in the pipeline too that are coming up. So good yeah. stuff on the way. Well, I tell you what, I reckon the end bit of the show has been nearly as good as the middle <laughs> bit. I know I, I, a lot of people say, which part of the show do you like? And they say, the end. <laughs> well, I've heard that said before. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's been my, uh, my uh, resume of, uh, and a critique of a lot of movies over the years too. Oh, which part did you like the bit? The end, when it was over. Yeah. It's like when um, you see acts on um, New Faces or something and they'd, or Bernard King or, you know, and they'd say, well, you obviously enjoy singing. Now the trick is to try and get everybody else to enjoy your singing. <laughs> Thank you, Bernard. <laughs> uh, he was go- he was uh, he was glorious in his day. You would you couldn't get away with that in a pink fit anymore. One would imagine your voice would sound good in chorus. Perhaps you and twenty thousand others. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Well, take care. Uh, thanks to Murcott's uh, driving excellence. Uh, don't forget, give him a call. Don't be a dill on the road. For goodness' sake, get better at driving. Oh. One three. But triple five five seven six. Give Mark a call now. Beautiful. Uh, thank you, Brian. Talk to you soon. That concludes the end bit of Life of Brian. <laughs>